0: Welcome to Philosophy Mixed, the Texas State University Department and KTSW's podcast series on philosophy and the nature of things. My name is Rebecca Farinas from the philosophy department. And along with Nick Williams, podcast producer at KTSW 89.9, we are here today to discuss contemporary views on music. Also, we need to remember Kimberly Clay, our co-producer of this session, who is not with us today as she is graduating from the university this Friday. And we want to thank her for her visionary work with the podcasts last semester and wish her well. Nick and I are here to welcome you to our summer sessions highlighting the ongoing Philosophy Dialogue Series as we are happy to be able to continue our collaboration with Professor Craig Hanks, the head of the philosophy department, and Joanne Carson, who along with Vince Luisi developed the dialogue series over 22 years ago. Before introducing our guests for today, we would like to set the scene for our discussion on music. So, as an overture, I would like to quote Suzanne K. Langer from her 1941 milestone text, Philosophy in a New Key. Langer wrote, the assignment of meaning in music is a shifting kaleidoscope play, probably below the threshold of consciousness, certainly outside the pale of discursive thinking. The imagination that responds to music is personal and associative and logical, tinged with effect, tinged with bodily rhythm, tinged with dream but concerned with a wealth of formulations for its wealth of wordless knowledge, its whole of knowledge of emotional and organic experience, of vital impulse, balance, conflict, the ways of living and dying and feeling. That brings us to our conversation. I would like to introduce our guests, Nico Schuler, Texas State University Distinguished Professor of Music Theory and Musicology.
1: Hello, how are you?
0: Good, we're so glad you could be with us today, Professor Schuller. Utah Hamrick, who's the Director of the Jazz Program here at Texas State.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Great, we're so glad you could come. And Nicholas Williams, of course, who's helping us uh, as a producer this semester with the podcast series.
3: Great to be here as always.
0: Great, and so I'd like to turn over the interviewing to my colleague, Nick.
3: Great, we're gonna start off our discussion by asking a basic, but a possibly complex question. That is, what is music? Or maybe we should ask, when or how is music? And this may sound a little bit like a complete oversimplification, uh, but we'd like to understand what sets music off from things like bird song, language, or conversation, or the harmony of the divine, as Plato suggested, or maybe those things are also musical. To add a little bit of context to the question, while most scientists argue that music, from birds to humans, is, is an adaptive phenomenon, Two contemporary musicians thinkers, David Byrne in How Music Works and David Rothberg in his trio of books about bird song, whale song, and bug music, suggest that music is also uh, a spontaneous and joyful occurrence. Uh, We make music because we can, and it brings us joy. And so drawing on your expertise and personal experience, does it seem plausible that music can be understood and originates in adaptation to the environment, or, or is there something more going on? (laughs) <laughs> right, that's
2: a, a huge question to start with, but uh, I think in relation to the very first question about just what is music and does it, is it different from birdsong and language and conversation or is it you know like P- Plato suggested all of those being musical? I would say you know music is really all about perception. I mean, we all we can all agree that a basic song is music, but there are a lot of things that happen orally around us that diff- that could be interpreted as music. Two, two different people, birdsong, you know, language, conversation, things like that, definitely all fit that, that bill. I think it's, a, you know, it's a matter of interpreting sounds, and if they're, if they're pleasing, if they're spontaneous and joyful, like you know, Rothenberg said, then, you know, then they can be, can be music to somebody beyond just our general melody, rhythm, harmony kind of, construct of, of music. Nico, what do you, what do you think?
1: Yeah, uh, I think there have been different definitions of music, what music is over the years. And um, I think one of the most important aspects is the communicative aspect. Um, But of course, animals have that too. Now, some definitions by some scholars um, specifically include the human aspect of music. But of course, if we look at music and musical developments over the last 50 years, we can see and hear that um, other sounds, such as by birds, whales, and so on, have made it into human music or music made by humans. So that sort of um, justifies um, actually a broader view on what music is. In fact, early in the summer, I was biking with my family through a park in Austin, and we took a rest on a bench and we heard Uh, birds. Uh, And it was very clear to us that they were communicating with each other. And as it turned out, those were baby owls that uh, could not yet fly very well, uh, or maybe not fly at all, but they were on different trees. And they were very clearly communicating with each other. And it was uh, very distinct sounds. It was organized in time. And, And those are elements of uh, definitions of music, but in 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 general, I think um, we can adopt really any definition uh, that uh, that seems to fit uh, the discussion or the purpose of um, of you know, what we want to talk about.
0: That's so fascinating, and so to both of you, I kind of wonder, taking from what you were explaining. Um, The imitative qualities to music Um, in, I know in jazz music, uh, you have uh, uh, positions to where you uh, time in with echoing and uh, Mm -hmm. when responses are so important. Um, And uh, as a spontaneous approach to music, do you think imitation plays a part in music?
1: Oh, absolutely, and, yeah. and we see that in in many different genres, where um, uh, let's say a subject or or a motive is being imitated.
2: Yeah, I mean, in, in in jazz, we always use the the kind of analogy of music being the language, and then you're conversing in that in that language. That the different members of the jazz band are all conversing through that through that language, but they all kind of understand what the other person is getting at, and they understand you know via context and notes and things and prior knowledge like where where to go and how to interpret those different different things so yeah it's very conversational as well
3: so how do you think that you kind of reconcile this this need almost of species and humans to have conversation with the product that is music because i mean we talked a little bit about how you know animals you see them communicating but i think people can you can easily see a distinction between someone having a conversation with somebody with words and someone communicating with music. So what do you think it is that sets that apart? Is it that kind of oral quality or what can you expand on that?
2: A combination of that and also music being able to express things that our language cannot. You know, I think a lot of times music is written as a way to express things that just trying to write down words or say words doesn't, you know, it doesn't adequately Convey you know the emotion or the feeling or the thought or whatever that's in the composer's mind. So music is like kind of the next level beyond that to try to add some other meaning or, or context to that. that
1: yeah, absolutely. Sense? The uh, the emotions and feelings are are very important, and we cannot uh, always express them the same way as we can in language. And uh, that's uh, how we use music. That's how humans have used music for thousands of years.
3: Would you say that all music comes from some sort of communicative background? I mean, are are you always trying to communicate something when you compose, or often you are?
1: I think we don't necessarily have to communicate, but there are always communicative aspects of it. Like if the composer writes a piece, even if the composer just wants to write down something uh, out of a creative process with no intention of ever performing it, if it is performed, then there is a message going from the composer to the musician, from the musician to the uh, audience, uh, if there is any, or in other circumstances, perhaps um, from from the musicians to others who start participating in the musical processes.
2: Yeah, I mean, and even introspection can be a type of communication, even if you're writing music just for yourself or writing a song to get some feelings out for yourself thats still you know, a type of communication as well.
0: That's fascinating. Uh, thanks for those insights. Uh, Professor Schuler and uh, Professor Hermrich, we know that you're both involved with playing and teaching music inspired by African-American musicians. American popular music is so different than European classical music due to the African-American influences. Can contemporary music, whether it is orchestrated or not, still be called classical music in any sense of the term, especially in respect to the European sense of the art form? And maybe we're narrowing too much thinking just in terms of African-American, but there's so many important growths and expanding dynamics that came out of those sources for the American experience. I thought that maybe we could ask you a little bit uh, about those trends within your teaching and also your composing.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the the word classical becomes really problematic because... I think for most of the public in general, classical means you're going and you're hearing Beethoven or Brahms or Bach or something like that. And even if you start to bring it into the 20th century, you know, early 20th century, and you know, Stravinsky or Schoenberg or something like that is still kind of the classical model because they're using, I mean, mostly because they're using orchestras as their, their medium. And then, but then as that kind of line goes on and they, it gets less traditional orchestral music into other things, is it still classical by in that you know by that sense and I don't know I mean contemporary is probably a better word would it still be called classical music probably not by most people but I guess you know like in your experience Nico in the classical realm does it do you still is it still kind of considered to be classical music if it's just art music you know outside of popular music or this it kind of contemporary a better a better umbrella for it
1: yeah, first of all, I never really liked the term classical, um, but uh, we commonly use the term classical in two different ways. In music history, we denote uh, the classical period and then music that is from roughly um, 1750 to 1820, with, of course, some pre-classical developments earlier. Um, but uh, then classical, as we are just talking about it, is is the general understanding of of a classical tradition and an art music tradition. I think art music is um, uh, very often used. I don't like the division of art music versus popular music either. Uh, In fact, in jazz, uh, there has been a a big discussion in jazz uh, scholarship um, of uh, whether jazz is, in fact, art music. And I think jazz scholars agree that uh, jazz music is indeed uh, art music.
0: So no divisions is maybe best,
1: huh? uh, No divisions is best. I, uh, I think we need to understand that um, at any point in time, there are cultural influences. I mean, the, the arts um, come out of a culture. Uh, in, in different degrees are different arts connected more. So in the African cultures, uh, various arts uh, just come together Uh, For example, music is always together, almost always together with dance. Um, If people make music, they most likely dance to it, too. Uh, Yet, if we look at the Western art music tradition of what we call it, then uh, that is not necessarily together. So, uh, very often we have this... Um, the stage and uh, other people sitting in the audience who are not supposed to move and not so most supposed to make any kind of sound. In fact, I had an interesting experience uh, um, about twenty years ago when I went to Korea. It was my honeymoon trip, and um, we were sitting in a performance of a uh, of a mono opera, and uh, so there you have one main person uh, telling the story, uh, speaking and singing, uh, and then uh, a percussionist uh, also accompanying. Anyways, the singer uh, has to perform for a very long period of time, depending on how long the story is, could be several hours long. And uh, it's very well possible that sometimes the singer doesn't get a certain pitch like at the beginning that singer was not warmed up and could not get a very high pitch and it was uh, uh, to my shock to experience that somebody in an, in the audience just sang that pitch uh, for the singer on stage and it seemed to be the most normal thing that you could um that you could experience, and so I uh, studied this a little more later on, and and indeed, um, in many cultures—African, Korean, many uh, Asian cultures—there um, is less division between audience and performers. So the the um, others are simply becoming part of the of the performance.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. If I might just ask one more follow-up question. Uh, The participatory aspect in teaching music, some people would consider teaching music as kind of an oxymoron, because you have to play music to learn music. So there's a certain amount of experience that just follows through from the individual. So um, in a classroom kind of setting, how do you get that participatory aspect?
2: Yeah, and and sometimes that's problematic with jazz, because it's kind of, or historically had been kind of looked at as a something, you know, you can, you do it just by learning it on the streets, and you could either do it and, or you can't, and learning it in a classroom is too sterile of an environment. Uh, I mean, but really, as far as jazz goes, I mean, so much of it does hinge on listening, and and part of our role of the teacher is to kind of be the guide of, you know, listen to this, imitate that, you know, check out these guys. You know, I mean, really, that's a lot of what our role especially like as the private lesson teacher or something is to kind of guide toward here's what you should be listening to here's what you should be transcribing and then in the more classroom setting it's some some of those uh, tools like you know here's your basic you know theoretical things you're looking at here's what the chord symbols mean when you transcribe you know this particular line you can see how this fits with this chord you know kind of the things that are melding it with the classical tradition um, you know but really it is a lot of of learning and experimenting and hearing, you know, the teachers play. You know, we're doing a lot of modeling in the, you know, as far, you know, rather than just than just kind of classroom orating. Mm -hmm.
1: So my experiences uh, are different from the classroom perspective because I'm in music theory and musicology. So we are trying to study music to intellectually understand, but of course with the goal to make our students better musicians. And traditionally, um, and, and in fact in most universities, the curricula still reflect this old model of teaching music theory and music history is really based on, on concepts of a uh, hundred or two hundred years ago is to study it intellectually to analyze the music or to analyze the history to, uh, to basically follow historical developments, um, yet uh, it very often misses the point that uh, it's really the sounding music that this is about. And so what we have come to understand is that even in the music theory, uh, or especially in the music theory and the music history classroom, we have to make music more alive and we also have to uh, make the connections to the ensembles such as the jazz ensembles, but the wind ensembles, orchestra, choir, and so on, so that uh, music in, in fact, uh, becomes alive. But if if I may um, come back to one more time to this uh, question uh, of uh, classical music, or we can even say, art music versus popular music. So recently, um, in recent uh, few years, I um, have been doing a research project on an African-American composer from the middle of the 19th century. His name is Jacob Sawyer, Jacob J. Sawyer. He was born 1856, and he was based out of Boston, but uh, traveled as a musician Uh, composer and as a pianist uh, with uh, many ensembles all over the United States and for nine months also in Europe with one of the ensembles. In any case um, I've brought a piece um, and uh, it was part of a minstrel show. So this piece is called I'm the Captain of the Black Cadets and the reason why I'm playing it because I want to uh, demonstrate that this is a piece of music that was or a kind of music that was widely received uh, and that many people like to listen to, to this kind of music. Anyways, I'll say a few more words. Let me just play an excerpt of it. Anyways, this uh, shall be um, sufficient as an as an excerpt. Now, this is a really um, electronic, a digital uh, realization of the piece of music. It was not performed by by a real musician. None of Sawyer's works have been uh, recorded uh, yet. Um, we're still in the process of rediscovering him. Um, so, as a As a person, Jacob Sawyer uh, became very interesting to me because he worked with the most important African-American musicians of his time in the late 1870s and up to his death in 1885. And that was the time period that was the the time uh, after the Civil War, shortly after the Civil War, when African Americans actually got into the music business and, in fact, es- uh, established a unique African American music business that shaped the entire music business through today, uh, basically, uh, here in the United States. And um, now, if we hear to the, if we listen to this kind of music, uh, we hear music that is partially, of course, has a European. Uh, descend um, in in terms of the genre, but there are uh, there are also uh, influences, um are harmonic uh, and rhythmic influences uh, that uh, really are African American in nature. In any case, um, I brought this example to show that uh, really this is. It was entertainment music at the time. We would not consider it. the 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 traditional musicologist, the traditional music scholar, would not consider it um, classical music or art music. Um, yet it is such an important part of our music history, um, and but it also shows that really. Uh, the, the distinction between art music and popular music or classical music, non-classical music, um, is, is very, very problematic.
0: Well, thanks for that. And uh, this line of thinking brings us to a question concerning the modern musical experience, culture industry. Although it seems reasonable to note that the German critical theorists, Adorno and Horkheimer, might have fully understood contemporary forms of popular music. Their analysis that much of popular culture has the impact and perhaps the intent of deadening us in a sense to more personal aspects of experience. And this only helps mold us into appropriate sorts of compliant consumers. Does this seem right to you? Does music retain any transcendent or revolutionary or critical forces? Did it ever have such?
2: Well, I think part of that question depends on whether you're 13 or 45, as to how much you you know you hold <laughs> yes. popular music in esteem. Uh, but I think there's definitely, as far as popular culture and popular music, still parts of the kind of uh, transcendent or transcendent and revolutionary or critical thinking in there I mean you know Donald Glover's this is America just came out you know there is some music that still is uh, kind of critical and thoughtful about society and about uh, about just life you know especially in America uh, in general While it's easy to categorize all popular music is kind of just light fair there is still you know that music that's still cutting through still trying to have ideas and ha- cause you know or trying to uh, encourage discourse and you know open people's minds in a thoughtful kind of way, you know, it, it's it might be harder to find. It might not just be you can't just turn on the radio and hear deep song after deep song. But you know, I don't know if that's necessarily ever been the case. But I think it's still, still definitely there. But it's a smaller percentage you know, of popular culture, that's for sure.
1: In some cultures, uh, music has purposefully been used to put people in a trance, uh, 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 for example, right before a war between tribes, um, for example. Uh, so you have that aspect too, right? I mean, um, in, in in traditional, in some other uh, non-Western cultures, but even in Western music, you um, Because you asked, did it ever have such? Uh, Does music retain any transcendent or revolutionary or critical force? Did it ever have such? And and there is music uh, from the past too, and not just in the popular realm, also in the what we would consider art music or classical realm. For example, uh, Joseph Haydn uh, wrote in 1772 the Farewell Symphony, uh, Symphony Number 45, the Farewell Symphony. And uh, it's a very interesting piece because it was at a time when the ensemble, the orchestra, Haydn's orchestra, uh, needed urgently needed a break they needed a vacation they hadn't had in a long time and Haydn wrote this piece and in the in the last movement, uh, which is usually a, a very fast movement and ends with a big bang. Uh, this is uh, this last movement is also a fast movement but it does not end with a big bang. instead, um, one by one musicians depart from the from the stage and giving the message, to the uh, to the higher ups uh, basically uh, saying that here we need a vacation so they stood up blew out their candle one by one and it's composed into the music it's in the score right it's composed into the music and um, and in fact they understood and they gave the orchestra musicians there were very well deserved vacation at that time. So, um, but you of course you have that today in popular music um, as well, and there is a lot of political music. Um, that, um, but we live in a society where a lot of uh, we we have. Nothing is impossible, basically, um, and so we have different kinds of expressions, this, different style kinds of styles, and different styles, uh, different kinds of goals uh, for music making, and we see all of those in today's society.
2: Yeah, and jazz—I mean, jazz in general has been mostly apolitical as far as its intent, though you do have the occasions like Charles Mingus was a very outspoken uh outspoken kind of political force in jazz that you don't really see much that you know from his fables of fabus about governor Orville fabus in arkansas and, and the segregating or the desegregation of central arkansas little rock central high in 1956 i believe it was uh but in general you know as far as you know the music that i deal with a lot, you know jazz tends to be more of a keep art and politics kind of separate for the most part so it can just be you know kind of kind of on its own so you know but you could also say jazz is not really part of the popular culture <laughs> as as i well know so
0: well the american jazz experience though has been thought of philosophically as a, a social justice an aspect of social justice movement
2: yeah you could say that musically there's been a few you know from from bebop you know on to hard bop and on to, to free jazz and then into uh, Fusion, you could see a lot of those as African-American musicians kind of asserting themselves, especially after a lot of white America had kind of taken over swing in the 30s and 40s, that the African-American musicians used bebop as kind of a way to put themselves back on the the forefront. Then after cool jazz and West Coast jazz kind of, again, brought a lot of more white influence than... You know, they kind of came back with uh, the hard bop and blues kind of bluesy influence of that of the 60s there. And then, you know, kind of just progressing on down the line, they have to kind of keep re reasserting themselves you know, musically. So while not being overtly political, it definitely is you know, contextually there, absolutely.
3: So I wanted to talk a little bit about digital music. Music is very popularly listened to in digital forms today where sound is translated into digital information. But would you say that we we lose something with our connection to the music when we listen to things digitally? I mean, are we missing some of that that kind of acoustic, really analog feeling when you're part of it? Uh, in addition, do you lose something when you listen on your own in headphones and you're not at a concert or part of part of that kind of community, that that event? what do you what do you would you say is uh, are some of the differences there?
2: As to the headphones question, I say you lose some things, but you can also gain some things by really having a good set of headphones on and listening, especially, you know, as far as jazz is concerned, there are things that you can hear, you know hearing the interaction between the instruments, hearing all the instruments fairly equally. You know, you can get that from really listening in headphones and zoning in that you can't get necessarily at the live event. Uh, I mean, in general, it's way better to experience any music live, you know, whether it be classical, whether it be jazz, whether it be pop or anything. I think that the visceral reaction of being there as it's created is, you know, you do lose that, you know, no matter what recording medium you use, you kind of lose that. Yeah, that's why when I would teach like a, a jazz history class for like non-music majors. Part of their assignments would always be to go and listen to jazz live, because that's such a different experience than it is just, you know, putting on a Miles Davis album at home. Not that that's not great, but if you don't know music and you don't really know if you're trying to learn about jazz, just listening to an album isn't going to do nearly as much as seeing it be- being created. You don't, you get that appreciation of, wow, this this person's right in front of me playing all this great stuff, and I'm hearing it in a way that I wouldn't hear it if it was just on my speakers at home or on my earbuds or whatever like you know so that's that's definitely a, a huge you know as far, as far as the digitization goes I don't know I mean whatever medium you're listening to it on whether it be analog or digital you know it's you're getting kind of you know it's either recorded or it's live you know to be either way I mean audiophiles would probably tell you differently that it's way better to listen to the analog you know listen to phonograph records but you know it's either live or it's not pretty much
1: yeah, I, I agree that uh, I mean you can lose something, but you can also gain something. Um, and but we can also we need to understand that the music would not have developed as it developed in the twentieth century if we wouldn't have had the technological developments. Um, so uh, we we move. Uh, Forward. Well, you can say it differently, but we move in a in a new direction, um, and um, so whether or not we lose something or uh, what is different is, n- is not the most important question. The The important question is what are the advantages or disadvantages? But um, I want to point out from my research one of the advantages of digitization, uh, that is uh, we now, so I have actually in my research uh, since the early 1990s, um, I've been doing a computer-assisted music analysis using computers to analyze music. And in my early years, uh, the first decade, or so, I took the music, the notation, and translated the the pitches and the dura- the, uh, the durations and so on, all the information that are in the score into um, numeric or alphanumeric um, code, and then analyze the music to find style characteristics. And um, there are some scholars who claim they you know they found important differences between the composers, or the computer program could tell which uh, style, which composer it is, or a piece where we had forgotten or where we didn't know the, the composer, we could determine uh, the composer. But nowadays, with the digitization of, um, of audio files, we can actually take the digital audio files and analyze them. And so some of my research today deals with timing in music. And I brought uh, two audio examples uh, from, um, from Beethoven's Piano Sonata Opus 2 Number no. 1, uh, and uh, let me play one first, but it's about timing in music, that means it's about the tone durations, and I'll just play the very beginning um, of, uh, of this piece, and the first version I'm playing is played by pianist Richard Goode. As long as we have this in our ear, I'll play uh, the second version right away. This is by Andras Schiff. And uh, you hear that the last note you heard is really the beginning of the next phrase, and it was there on purpose, because what I did is I calculated onsets uh, of nodes. That means whenever a new node comes in, I have a certain, uh, I calculated the onset with a computer program uh, with a VAM plug-in and the computer program sonic visualizer. It's freely available on the internet. Anybody can can use it. And and then I calculated how long are uh, all the nodes. That means from one onset of a node to another. And there are some interesting questions. Of course, the one of the obvious things is is uh, the tempo, um, and uh, it, but in this particular case, the tempo was exactly the same, the metronome two twenty two. Um, so what is different? The different is how the f- um, how some of the notes are played longer and shorter. For example, uh, in in the second measure, right after reaching that first climax, we have three short notes. Uh, they are triplets. And um, so, how are they being played? Let me play that one more time. These uh, very short notes, right? Um, And uh, so, as as it turns out, uh, they're played a little longer than if you would mathematically calculate the durations of those very short notes. Then the question is, what do humans do? How do they make music? If uh, they if they extend the value of a tone duration, is it being taken away somewhere else? And we can um, with such research, we can in fact prove that. Uh, well, it depends on the situation, but for sure, in this in both of these performances, uh, we can say that yes, the note before those short notes is shortened to make up for making the shorter notes actually longer than what the score actually um, requires. But I have one more um, aspect of this, and those are the grace notes, and they're in measure five and six or two grace notes. So it's so very uh, short notes um, that come uh, before a higher note. Uh, let's listen. Ta-da! That's, those are grace notes. And the question is, and uh, how do performers uh, perform grace notes? And uh, so this, again, this was the performance by Richard Goode, the first one. Uh, and if we now uh, compare that to the great grace notes by Andras Schiff. You could probably hear that Andras Schiff played those grace notes much longer Than Richard Good. In fact, um, Richard Good played the grace note, uh, both grace notes, approximately 0.05 seconds long, whereby Andres Schiff played them 0.17 or 0.2. That's three to four times longer. Than uh, Richard Good, and and uh, so what we learn is um, how how we as musicians or how different musicians perform, but we can learn something that all musicians do the same, and we can learn uh, what musicians do differently, and we can uh, maybe learn for ourselves as musicians. Uh, if we want to perform um, the the music by ourselves, that uh, that we have to find some kind of expression, and these deviations uh, is just part of the normal of, of the musical life of of making music, and I'm I'm sure the yeah. jazz musician knows best about that.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, and those nuances are part of why you want to hear music live not always the same recording over and over cuz you do get you know you don't think of classical music as much as jazz in the context of like being different from performance to performance but there are definitely from one performance of beethoven 9 to another one there are a lot of you know little subtle nuances in there that you know just like the ones you just played that make make it a different performance
0: i did want to pick up on um uh aspect of listening. And um, the American philosopher John Dewey, in his manifesto on the arts, Art Experience, explains listening to music or viewing a painting as a creative endeavor involving a participant who is also artistic along with the musician and the composer. Do you think music appreciation is learned? Um, and uh, or is it cultural? And do you think listeners are a creative dynamic in the musical experience?
1: I personally think uh, it's both culturally and academically. Um, and so we talk about uh, appreciation, but we also talk about creativity. And in fact, um, we all have creative aspects, uh, uh, creative talents. And if we don't nurture, our our talents, then we cannot unfold them, and uh, and there might be cultural differences, but the most important thing is actually nurturing uh, that creativity while we're growing up. And in fact, um, the great British American um, educator Sir Ken Robinson um, has you know done a lot of research uh, on. Education and he said our school system, really how it still is, which is based on 19th century concept, uh, suppresses this uh, creativity, um, and uh, I think we need to change that so we can unfold it. So. Through schooling, we can unfold uh, creativity. So it it um, it it's both cultural and uh, as well as academic or schooled.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, as as Nico said, I think it ideally more of it would be you'd learn it culturally. But I think for you know probably ninety percent at least of Americans, the. What the music appreciation appreciation you're going to get culturally is going to be mostly in a popular music kind of way. You know, most most people don't have. You know, I don't I don't know what the percentage are, but most people don't have parents that are really into classical music or really into jazz. If you just go by the sheer numbers, we know yeah, we know that just wouldn't work out that way. So some of it has to be learned academically. Now, I did have a a, a short uh, snippet of a little bit of uh, Louis Armstrong. that's just a little snippet of a uh, hotter than that by Louis armstrong and his hot five from uh, 1927 this kind of goes along with my my you know the argument for some of it having to be learned academically now so this this past uh, may i performed as part of a uh, dixieland group you know traditional new orleans jazz group at uh, fiesta texas for did about 20 or so shows there uh, and since this was in in may a lot of the people that came to the to Six Flags in May were school groups, a lot of them being band trips that were there. And you can tell because they all have their matching T-shirts on, so it's always easy to tell when you have people there. Now, most Americans, and even some jazz musicians and jazz appreciators, aren't huge on Dixieland because part of it is it's kind of hard to listen to. Like, if you don't know how to listen to something that has three or four different things going on at once, it can be kind of uh, difficult to to interpret and to understand, so you know, it's kind of like, eh. Uh, not for me, kind of thing. But what I noticed is during this, during these these performances, a lot of our audience would be made up of these high school band students would be there watching us, you know. And I don't think fifteen year olds are inherently fans of Dixieland jazz just intrinsically on their own. A lot of it comes from them themselves being musicians, even if they don't play jazz. Especially, I'm sure most of them don't play Dixieland. The appreciation of oh, I play trumpet. I'm listening to this I'm listening to Ed Sherry play trumpet and it sounds really good and he's really tearing it up then you start to appreciate that oh this is great or you know whatever instrument it is you're you're identifying with musicians in a way that okay I don't listen to this music normally or I haven't listened to this music but I'm seeing it done live I'm seeing somebody who does who plays the same instrument that I do you know really doing something amazing and then you start to develop and that's and then that way even if if Dixieland isn't something you love, you are, you know, kind of by definition at least uh, appreciating it, right? Appreciation kind of comes from that familiarity. And so, you know, that's, but that's all learned academically, they're learning that in band class, they're learning that in school, they're learning how to play these instruments. So then they're seeing other types of, of music done that same way or with those similar instruments and they have an appreciation for it, even if it's not there, you know, and I think, you know, free jazz or Dixieland are kind of like that for a lot of jazz musicians, where they, even if it's not the kind they prefer, they appreciate what goes into it. And, you know, that's a big part of the kind of academic learning of music appreciation is that you know, having the tools to be able to interpret what you're seeing or hearing, and then at least developing an appreciation from that. Respect. I mean, so many, so much of the jazz audience is not jazz musicians. You know, so much of the classical audience is not. Are they not classical musicians? But they're people who appreciate that music.
0: Yes, I think that's such an important point. How there has always, uh, it seems, been a relationship with music and education. And um, I know we started off by dropping Plato's uh, name, (laughs) uh, but Plato, as well as thinking that uh, music was uh, uh, divine in respect to it organized the cosmos, uh, he thought um, music was an insight into our education and our pedagogy as far as organizing our ability to be self-reflective and our abilities to think communally and uh, these were important aspects that um, ancient greek philosophers were taking up thousands of years ago so i think there has always been a connection between education and and music um, and culture you can't really tear that apart so
3: absolutely definitely
0: well thank you very much Uh, Nick, is this, there's uh, something else that you wanted to add? Or
3: I think we covered some great ground. This is um, there's obviously you know something like music is is so broad. You you can't you almost can't do it justice in just a, a short recording. But uh, it's been fantastic having your expertise here to really talk about some of the uh, some of the interesting points and some of the points that really affect us most today. So thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you for yeah. having
2: us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it was a lot of fun.
3: This has been Philosophy Mixed, a production of KTSW and the Department of Philosophy at Texas State University.